Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you're following along with our Bible reading plan, you've actually just finished the book of Leviticus, right? Hallelujah. Uh, (laughs) And now you get to read Numbers, which is better. Uh, you're, you're in the middle of this, this sort of section of the Bible that's just really difficult to read. I understand that, right? It's lots of um, fairly boring passages about rules and regulations and then lists of numbers and lists of names and all this. And I, I understand. The, the good news is, of course, once you're through Deuteronomy, everything else is really easy. Um, but, you know, these books, as difficult as they are, they're actually very, very important because they, they form really the foundation of of the Jewish faith and the Jewish understanding of who God is and who we are and what God is doing and how he's doing it. And that means that all those things are true for Jesus and the apostles. So these books explain to us how they saw the world and how they understood what God was doing. And they then inform how they understand what Jesus did on the cross and what it means for us to be Christian. So so in a way, the foundations of, of Christian belief are set by these books, as hard as they are to read and as dry as they can be and as confusing and, and odd as they can be. Um, there are things in there that we need to know and understand. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to... Today's sermon, I'm preaching one sermon on Leviticus because I'm merciful and I'm not doing a whole, a whole month on it. Uh, the challenge is preaching one sermon about an entire book. So uh, I'm not going to read you the whole book this morning. You're welcome. But I, I, I do have, I just kind of picked three, three little short passages that I think will help me make the points I want to make. So uh, I'm going to start in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 through 29. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when they realize guilt and the sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect. They are to lay their hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. And then we're going to skip ahead into chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them, or left in their care, or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to them, or the lost property they found, or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. And then finally, from chapter 17 and verse 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. 
My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, These stories are are just kind of odd for us to read, and I've had a few people come up and say to me, you know, all I can think is that like the altar and the tent must have just smelled awful and been really dirty and just bloodstained and gory, and it just can't have been a pleasant place. Um, And and that that may be true. Um, (laughs) On the face of it, these, these... sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament seem very much like what, uh, what every other religion in the world at the time was doing. Right? Animal sacrifice was just about universal, uh, at least in the, the Mediterranean, Middle Eastern religions. Almost every religion had animal sacrifice, and then most of them had some element of human sacrifice as well, um, usually with infants or children. But there is uh, something about the way that God sets up. It's a bit different, but it's hard for us to see. And part of why it's difficult is that um, after, after sort of the first generation of Christians who put together the texts that make up the Bible and, and, and spread the church abroad, there's this whole generation of, of theologians who for the first time are Christians who were not raised in the Jewish faith. And they come from these pagan backgrounds and, and they have their own ideas about what animal sacrifice is and how it works. And then they read uh, what happens in the Old Testament and they read these scriptures and then they kind of superimpose some of their ideas about what it is and how it works on top of that. And that then gets worked into Christian theology and it muddies the picture a little bit. Um, but there is a difference between what God is telling the Israelites to do versus what various pagan religions did. Um, so in, in pagan animal sacrifice, it, it generally works like this, right? First, it, it starts from the assumption that the gods are angry with you. Uh, and if you've ever paid close attention to Greek or Roman mythology, you realize their gods are kind of nasty people, right? Um, they're, they're not nice and kind and loving gods. They're really quite cruel and, and jealous and, and fickle. And so they have this idea, well, the gods are angry with me. Um, they're going to kill me if they're angry with me. So what I'm going to do is, if I kill this animal instead and give it to them, maybe they'll spare my life. And so what often happens when Christians uh, read the Old Testament is actually something very similar. We, we interpret it in a very similar way, and we, we essentially say, okay, well this must mean, okay, God is holy and perfect. We are not. Therefore, God's angry with us, so he has to kill us. But if we kill this animal instead, God will spare our life. And what we then do is we say, well, and then, you know, thankfully, Jesus comes to die in our place. God's angry. God takes out all his anger and wrath on Jesus, and so he doesn't have to kill us. And so we get to go to the good place instead of the bad place when we die, right? That, this is generally how we work all this out. And the problem is, that's not in the Bible. Believe it or not. The biblical approach actually starts off very differently. It doesn't actually start off with an angry God. It starts with an understanding of what human sin is and why it's a problem. And, and here again, we, we tend to put this into the category of like, okay, here's, here's the list of rules we have to follow. Sin is breaking the rules. But that's not really how the Bible portrays it. Really, the Bible describes sin as this thing which vandalizes and infects and defiles the good creation God has given us. And there really is this very strong sense of sin as this thing that operates almost like an infectious disease and it can spread and it can contaminate and it, and it can infiltrate and it's insidious. It's not just about breaking rules. It's this thing that has entered into the world and altered what God's good creation is supposed to be. And so in a real sense, the Bible portrays sin as, as introducing death and destruction into the world itself. 
death being the consequence of sin and kind of the antithesis of God because God brings life. And so you'll notice, or maybe you have noticed when you read through Leviticus, um, a lot of the things that make people ritually unclean are things associated with death or mortality. Uh, things like, like fungus, which consumes uh, carrion, right? Touching a dead body makes you unclean. There is this sense that, that anything associated with death cannot be in the presence of God because God is life and God hates death. And that theme gets picked up in the New Testament as well. The New Testament authors will refer to death consistently as an enemy of God. They'll even, uh, Paul will even say at one point, death is the last enemy to be defeated before uh, we're all raised from the dead and go on into eternity. So there is this really strong sense that, that we have introduced death into the world through human sin, but this is not something that comes from God, and God is vehemently opposed to it. So in Leviticus, the tabernacle's just been built. They've been brought out from slavery, and God wants to be present with them. And so now the problem is, Israel's sin wouldn't just continue to, to defile and infect and vandalize the world. It would actually affect this very sacred space. And so the problem is, right? and notice, by the way, at no point anywhere in the Bible are these laws supposed to apply to anybody but the people of God. The stakes are higher for the people of Israel than for anybody else because they are supposed to live in the presence of God. So these rules are just for them because they are God's chosen people. And, and the problem is, if, if God cannot be present with them, then they would once again live in a world devoid of the, of the presence of God. And it would be just like the world was in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you read along those back in January, you, you remember there's this, this horrible image of sort of the world spiraling ever deeper into chaos and violence and evil and all these horrible things are happening. And that's why God calls Abraham in the first place. So if God's presence has to be removed from the tabernacle, they'll be just like it was before he called Abraham in the first place. Obviously, God wants to avoid this. He wants to dwell with his people, and the sacrificial rituals he gives them in Leviticus, along with all the purity rituals, these are his means of making sure it happens. So the sacrifices have four purposes. Right? First, they're supposed to turn people away from their sin in the first place. They're to provide a just recompense for the hard cost of sin. And this is something we lose out on as well. We tend to think that the consequence of sin is only something that happens in eternity, but actually the Bible insists that sin has consequences here and now. Right? Do you notice when they, when they come and offer the sacrifices for their sin, it's not actually associated with forgiveness. The forgiveness comes when they repent of their sins. These are separate things. The sacrifice is making up the cost of what they've done. So to turn away from sin, to provide a recompense for the cost of sin. Three, it's to provide a way to cleanse and purify the community from the infectious nature of sin. And then finally, it's to ensure that God can maintain his presence with his people. So... Think about what happens when they commit a sin. And by the way, these sacrifices are all for unintentional sins. Did you notice there's no sacrifice for an intentional one? If you've sinned intentionally, you're just kicked out of the community. These are all for the things that you weren't aware that you were doing and that you become aware of later on. 
So this is like all the things you do in your life where you like, you know, go throughout your day normally and then the next day you realize, ooh, I shouldn't have said that, right? Every husband knows this, right? We have these moments all the time. Right? Ooh, I shouldn't have said that, right? This, this is what it's talking about. The things you didn't even realize at the time were bad and you realize later on, I have messed up. So think about what happens, right? You realize you've committed a sin. So now you have to bring an offering to the temple. And you have to go pick an animal out of the flock and it's gotta be essentially the most valuable one you can find. The one in the best condition, the healthiest one, the one that would fetch you the most money at the market or that would feed you the longest if you were going to keep it. Already this is something major to give up. Something that you would not want to part with. So you pick the animal or if you don't have a flock of your own, you go and you buy the animal. And then you bring it to the tabernacle. And here again, we have one of the key differences between the Jewish faith and the pagan religions. In a pagan temple, you take the animal, you put it on the altar, and you kill it there. But God will not allow you to kill something in his temple or in his tabernacle. You kill the animal outside. So you bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle. And then you can't hand it off to the priest and let them do the dirty work. You have to kill it yourself. Every time you sin unintentionally, you have to take this animal, bring it to the temple, and you yourself will hold the knife and cut its throat, and you yourself will watch its life drain away. It is an incredibly powerful and visceral reminder of the consequences of our sin and selfishness. That you know as you watch this animal die, it is dying because of you. I mean, just imagine, just imagine that every time you messed up, you had to do this. This is high stakes stuff. Human sin has real consequences in God's world. It matters. It affects the very nature of creation. And it's, it's easy for us to think, well, you know, okay, I did one little thing over here. It's not that big a deal. But you know, in the context of what's going on in Leviticus, you've got a community of hundreds of thousands of people, and if they all do these little things every day, that all piles up. And, and the Bible insists that this thing, this has real-world consequences. Sin leads to chaos and disorder and destruction. And so all these little things, they add up, and the consequences could be devastating. The stakes are high. And so the animal's death serves as this very powerful physical symbol of the consequences of our sin. And it's also a symbolic substitute. Right? God is well within his rights to demand that, that we face the consequences of our own sin. But instead, the animal's life serves as a substitute. And the word uh, gets translated here as atonement. But the Hebrew word is kippur, from which we get Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the word kippur literally means to cover. It's actually the word you use for like the roof of a tent. It covers your sins. The implication is literally, it's as if you're covering them over so God can't even see them anymore. He won't look on them anymore. And it sort of is an intentional callback to Passover when the angel of death passes over their houses. Uh, in other words, it's, it's not that they're wiped away or God looks at them. And it's that God is intentionally not looking at them anymore. It's as if they don't exist. You no longer have to bear any guilt or shame for this. It's a step beyond forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
and then we get to the, the real heart of the matter, right? The animal's blood. This is, I mean, it's gory stuff, right? You take the blood from the animal you kill and you splash it on the altar and you put it on the horns of the altar. And like when you're ordaining priests, you splash them with the blood of these animals. I mean, it's, it's to, to us at least, this is kind of disgusting. Um, to people who probably live in much closer context with the animals that they're eating anyways, right? This is probably less disgusting and, and a bit more normal, but it's still, it's a lot of blood. And, and the reason is that blood represents life. In their mind, the blood is literally the life of the animal. Um, so there's, there's a, a, another law in there, right? You shall not eat any meat with the blood of the animal still in it, right? And there's Actually, Old Testament scholars who say that what this verse is actually telling them is not just to drain the blood out of an animal once you've slaughtered it, but you can't eat an animal that's still alive, uh, which would have been actually a common pagan practice in some of their religious rituals, to take parts of the animal that's still living and eat them. Um, so it's more than, it's, it's, the blood is literally the life of the animal. It represents the animal's life. So what they do is they kill the animal outside of the tabernacle and they bring the blood in because the blood represents the life of the animal. And it functions like a detergent. You sprinkle it on the altar and it washes away the contamination of sin and death. And this is what allows God's presence to remain with his people. So do you begin to see the connections between this and what Jesus does on the cross? Right? that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he dies as an atonement for our sins, and that his blood then washes away the contamination of those sins. This is not an image of an angry God smiting his people or making them kill him. It's very much a God who loves his people, who wants to be present with them, who willingly forgives their sins, but who understands that because of the way creation has been made, there is a cost to sin that has to be paid and dealt with. In other words, your actions have consequences. Right? The things we do matter. The way we live our lives, even if you're forgiven for something, there are still consequences for it, right? Every, every married person knows that when you fight with someone, if it's a really bad one, you might forgive each other, but you might still be angry at each other for a little while, right? Or if you get into a real bad tiff with somebody and you, you might resolve the issue, you might forgive them, but there are probably still actually differences in your relationship with that person going forward. If you break a law, you might be forgiven for it, but you might also still have to be punished for it, right? The things we do have consequences. God forgives our sins freely just by repenting, but, but sin makes a difference in the world. What better time to reflect on that than the first Sunday of Lent, right? Sin has consequences. And we have to move beyond this idea that, we, yeah, of course it has consequences, but they're all eternal, right? They're all after death. They're not. The Bible is emphatic on this point that actually the things we do in this life have consequences here and now. And they echo into eternity, but there are things which we do now which have consequences here and now. Human sin introduces death and destruction into the world. It feeds into chaos. And it spreads like a virus. So God's people in Leviticus are called to be uniquely holy. 
And the book of Leviticus, right, it seems at times like it's maybe more detailed than it needs to be. But the idea is that God's holiness must affect every single aspect of your life. All of your behaviors, the way you do everything must be different in light of the presence of the holy God who is with you. Because the stakes are that high. Because the idea is that God will take these people and be present with them in the wilderness and if they live a holy life and they do the things that they are supposed to do, then through them, God will save the rest of the world. And that's a promise which finds its fulfillment in Christ. But the mission continues. What Christ's sacrifice on the cross enables is that now God's presence is with us, each of us, wherever we go. It's no longer limited to the temple or the tabernacle. It is worldwide. It comes with us, which means we are always living in the presence of a holy God. And, of course, we don't have to keep offering sacrifices and purity rituals because that's been done. That's been dealt with forever. And the, the thing about Leviticus is we read it and we think, well, we don't actually have to follow these laws, so what's the point? But, but what you notice in the New Testament is that Jesus takes some of them and he addresses them specifically and repeals them, right? Um, right? We don't have to keep kosher. And one of the reasons we don't keep kosher is that Jesus tells the Pharisees very clearly, you cannot be defiled by what goes into your mouth, but by what comes out of your mouth, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So there are definitely parts where he takes laws from Leviticus and says, this one no longer applies. But then he takes other ones and he intensifies them, right? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I tell you, if you have hate for your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. So it's this odd thing where he takes some laws and and ditches them and then takes others and makes them actually kind of harder to follow. And what he's really saying to the people of his day is, look, you have focused so much on the letter of the law that you've forgotten the spirit of the law. You've forgotten what it means to live a holy life and to pursue holiness. And you've made an idol of this thing and you had to move beyond it and figure out what the point of it was in the first place and why did God institute this law and why does it matter? Because see, that is the law you have to follow. I mean, he's very clear, right? I've come not to abolish the law, but to uphold it, which is weird because then he does abolish some of the laws. He's telling the people, what matters is living a holy life. That never stops. That, that requirement doesn't go away. It actually becomes even more important because just as God was going to take the Israelites and use them to save the rest of the world, now he's fulfilled that promise and you are now the people through whom God will save the world. You are the people of God living in the presence of God and your job now is to carry that presence forth, to be his people in the midst of the darkness to be his saving instrument for those who still live in that darkness. So the way we live our lives matters. The sins we commit matter. And we're, we're freed from the necessity of taking a goat to the church every day and slaughtering it. Um, thanks be to God. I don't want to clean that up. But we're not free to simply do whatever we want. This, this season of Lent is meant to be the time when we actually reflect on, on the ways in which we have fallen short of the mark. In fact, the word sin in the New Testament, the Greek word there, is, is actually an archery term that literally means to miss the mark. All have missed it. 
the season of Lent is meant to give us a chance to actually reflect on, on where we've fallen short, where we have been sinning unintentionally, right? It's easy to avoid the intentional sins. I mean, that's, that's not the hard part. The hard part is figuring out where we're doing things without even realizing it that we have to stop doing. And so we take this season and, and we reflect on that. And as we come to Easter, what we then do is we recall that Jesus has already died for these sins. We don't bear any guilt or shame for them. But by remembering the sins we've committed and the the ways in which we've fallen short, on Easter Sunday we can then appreciate the full glory and the full power of the gift we are given in the resurrection of Jesus. We are the people of God. We are in the presence of God. And God's holy presence demands that we live differently that we allow his holiness to affect every single aspect of our lives. So maybe take this season of Lent and and actually reflect on that and find those places in our lives that have not yet been transformed by the power and the grace of God and turn those over to him so that on Easter Sunday we can come and celebrate the resurrection in the full power and the joy that it brings. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.